Welcome to Law X.0, a Bloomberg Law podcast dedicated to seeing around corners and preparing you for the next version of the legal industry. Welcome to Law X.0. I'm Meg McAvoy. And I'm Dory Goldstein. We're legal analysts for Bloomberg Law. Today we're talking about the ramping up of economic sanctions against Iran. This is a topic that really reaches beyond trade and international security. And because the U.S. economy and national security are so intertwined, it's really not a topic that businesses or law firms can ignore. Some proof that law firms are paying attention to this comes from a recent Bloomberg Law story that found that U.S. law firms are hiring more and more attorneys with national security experience. Here to explain the economic sanctions and how they're impacting lawyers and their clients is John Smith. John is co-head of Morrison Forster's National Security Practice and former head of the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control. Welcome, John. Thanks. It's a privilege to be talking to you. Thanks so much for uh, for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I just want to start uh, to hear it from you to get an idea of what the current uh, sanctions environment looks like. So please give us a quick summary of all of the crucial things that have kind of happened over the course of 2019 with Iran sanctions. So the current sanctions environment with respect to Iran is pretty all-encompassing. When you talk about sanctions, you have to make a distinction between what are called primary and what are called secondary sanctions. Primary sanctions affect U.S. persons. What happens in the United States are those subject to U.S. jurisdiction. And basically, there's very little that U.S. persons can do with respect to Iran Uh, The only exceptions really are food, medicine, medical products, and and some personal communications devices. But pretty much everything else is verboten with respect to Iran. It's prohibited for U.S. persons. Really, the action has been on what's called secondary sanctions, which is where the U.S. government threatens uh, uh, allies and others around the world that says, if you do business with Iran, then we may sanction you. It's basically a choice. Do business with the United States or do business with Iran, but you can't do both. And that's where most of the sanctions changes have been made over the course of this past year, uh, 2019 and 2018. Uh, Can you give us some examples, I guess, of U.S. allies who would still want to do business with Iran? I mean, I think we as Americans commonly think of them as as the bad guys in the current climate. And so um, what what countries are we talking about where these secondary sanctions are, are being felt? Pretty much the rest of the world. Remember that the United States was only a few years ago part of what was called the P5 plus one, the permanent five members of the Security Council plus Germany that got together and negotiated a nuclear deal with Iran that basically said if Iran gave up certain nuclear rights and uh, basically shuttered some of its nuclear reactors and other uh, nuclear-related facilities, then the United States would lift some of the sanctions, the Europeans would lift some of the sanctions, the United Nations would lift sanctions. And so that was an agreement that was done with the world community and the United States withdraw withdrew unilaterally from that agreement. So much of the rest of the world, including some of our closest allies in Europe, want to continue to do, do business with Iran, not because they think Iran is an innocent actor, but I think the concern for others would be, uh, if would you rather have a government that is dangerous as Iran, would you rather have that government to be a nuclear uh, government or a nuclear weapons 
uh, uh, with a nuclear weapon or without a nuclear weapon. And I think much of the rest of the world said, we want to continue with the nuclear deal to make sure that Iran does not develop nuclear weapons. So OFAC is a relatively small division of the Treasury Department. Can you talk about what enforcement looks like in the sanctions-heavy international environment? How do you respond to these sweeping administrative policies, such as putting the sanctions back on Iran after pulling out of the agreement? It's pretty amazing. The people at OFAC have to work around the clock uh, to implement some of the sanctions. For the U.S. Uh, perspective, an agency of a couple hundred people is relatively small when you think of government agencies uh, from the rest of the world. OFAC is feared because OFAC is an agency that was able to uh, go after some of the major banks of the world and saying, you've been violating sanctions and helping to impose billion-dollar penalties on institutions, financial institutions uh, around the world. And OFAC has been increasing its uh, aggressive implementation and enforcement of sanctions. This past year, you've seen already in the first nine months of the year uh, about three times the number of sanctions enforcement cases out of OFAC than you saw in all of 2018. This is getting to be pretty serious, which means the people at OFAC are working round the clock to implement these sanctions. What does OFAC do about businesses that don't have a U.S. nexus? Uh, you mentioned that there are uh, secondary sanctions, and I know that there are ways that they can pressure companies, but uh, what does that pressure look like, and, and what happens if it doesn't work? So for companies around the world, their threat from OFAC and the U.S. government is really twofold. First is you have a traditional what's called an enforcement action where the company has to worry, will they send something through the United States? Will there be an accidental transaction that hits U.S. jurisdiction where there are civil or criminal penalties for violations of the sanctions? If you think, is it worth it for a company to try to violate, um, remember that each violation of under the basic sanction statute can be penalized with 300000 per transaction or twice the value of the transaction. So when you think about major banks that send thousands of transactions or tens of thousands uh, on a daily or weekly basis, then the penalties can add up pretty quickly. And even for global companies, you have to worry about, did you send something through the United States or somehow involve a U.S. person or a U.S. financial institution, something that's considered a U.S. nexus where you may get a, a major enforcement action. And then the penalty for secondary sanctions isn't the traditional, you'll get a dollar penalty or face uh, a criminal penalty, but it's being cut off from the United States entirely. The threat is OFAC will add you to a sanctions list if you violate those secondary sanctions and you'll no longer be able to deal in the U.S. financial system or with a U.S. company. And for most companies and banks around the world, that would be a death sentence. Yeah. So it sounds like, the, I mean, the effect of these sanctions is pretty sweeping because it touches on the financial on financial services companies. I know that there are also metals export sanctions in place, and so it's obviously affecting companies who deal in those. But is it really the financial piece that kind of goes deep into the business sector? The financial piece is what makes it really hurt around the world because the big banks have been penalized by OFAC and other U.S. government enforcement agencies and regulators for the past decade. And so the banks are really 
uh, conservative in their approach. And so there may be global companies that may want to take the risk, but then they have to worry about their banks. Will their banks debank them? Will their banks handle these transactions? And increasingly, the answer is no. So it is through the banks that OFAC is able to assert much influence around the world. China is a country that may be testing OFAC's patience in terms of its flouting the Iran sanctions as well as longer standing sanctions against North Korea. Can you talk about what the challenges what the challenges are currently posed by China? Sure. China is one of the most difficult problems that has vexed uh, administration after administration because China is a major economy. You're talking about uh, having the world's number one and number two economies with fundamentally different national security and foreign policy goals when it comes to issues like Iran, Syria, North Korea, Venezuela. There are very, very different objectives and very, very different priorities. And so for OFAC to be able, OFAC and the U.S. government to go after China it really means going after institutions of the size and scale that could cause global systemic effects. So OFAC can target Iran's top banks, it can target Syria's top banks, it can target Cuba's top banks. But when you go after the top banks of China, you're talking about something that could have catastrophic impacts in the United States and around the world. So OFAC has to devise different methods of going against China, going after Chinese actors that may be flouting some of the U.S. sanctions rules. Using sanctions seems to be a strategy that's increasing. Is there this risk that we're going to use sanctions too much and that our allies are going to get tired of them? Absolutely. Former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew uh, wrote a piece a few years ago Uh, while he was Treasury Secretary and gave a number of of speeches and other discussions that he talked about sanctions fatigue and the concern that when we try to impose our values and our objectives through sanctions, if we overuse them, then you might have uh, many of the countries around the world trying to circumvent our sanctions. I remember during my OFAC days, it was not unusual to have governments like China and Russia talk about ways to circumvent U.S. sanctions and circumvent the U.S. dollar. Today, you have countries like Germany and France, some of our closest allies, talking about ways to circumvent U.S. sanctions and find ways around the U.S. dollar. So there definitely is a concern that the international marketplace might find ways around the United States and undercut the objectives of our sanctions programs. Is this current climate something that these other countries or U.S. businesses or banks can try to wait out? Is this going to change if we get a different party in office? Yes and no. Um, By and large, U.S. sanctions are consistent from year to year, administration to administration. So if you think about the 30 sanctions programs that OFAC may have, with respect to terrorism, weapons of mass destruction, proliferation, human rights abuses, narcotics trafficking, most of those don't have much of a political element to them, and there's not a lot of objection to many of them around the world. It may be a few programs. Traditionally, over the years, Cuba and Iran have been the most 
political in the sense of the idea that under the Obama administration, sanctions might be eased or you might find a way for a deal. And now under the Trump administration, sanctions may be toughened. So you might be able to wait out some of the sanctions, but there's no way of predicting what may happen in the future. And so you may be waiting for a very long time. Hmm. This is, so this is not something that is, is going to necessarily, the resolution's not tied up in the upcoming election. So the, it is likely if there were a different administration that came in, for example, a Democratic administration, there may be more of an opening to Cuba as existed in the past. And many Democrats had supported President Obama's initiatives with Iran and supported the European uh, initiatives to try to bring Iran closer to the world community. So there is a decent likelihood that circumstances may change and there may be more of an administration opening to Iran or Cuba with a different administration. But remember that if there is a change, all that the U.S. government would be doing is authorizing or allowing businesses to take that risk of doing business with Iran or Cuba, it doesn't mean that businesses would be required. And as I've mentioned already, the big banks around the world are somewhat scared and very conservative in this aspect. So even when there was an Iran deal, many of the big banks around the world still didn't want to do business with Iran because of the potential of getting it wrong and facing a major enforcement action and penalty. So even if an administration changes its view, it doesn't mean that the business community will actually be able to do business with the countries such as Iran and Cuba. Let's talk a little bit about the private sector response to all of this. So we know that law firms are increasingly ramping up their national security practices, um, bringing on professionals like you with your background and expertise. Can you talk about how the sanctions environment is translating into client work for you? Absolutely. I I left the government after nearly 20 years of public service, uncertain about what the private sector would be. And it has been interesting that I found that uh, global financial institutions and corporations around the world need some of the same guidance about sanctions as the type that we were developing at OFAC. By and large, companies want to do the right thing. They want to make a profit but they also don't want to undercut the government's foreign policy or national security objectives. So they want to know what the rules are. They want a good prediction of what's going to happen in the future to the extent that you can, and they want to stay on the right side. And so the issues that I'm dealing with in the private sector in many respects are very similar to what I was dealing with at the U.S. government. What warnings would you give to your own clients, but also banks and other businesses that could be affected by sanctions? Be careful. Uh, the, and that was direct. Oh, <laughs> indeed. Uh, OFAC has been pretty clear that you should have a good compliance program in place and that the compliance program should be able to be assessing the risks of the business and that should have good controls of the business and that the business overall needs to have a good culture of compliance to make sure to stay on the right side of the law. And in this respect, when you see uh, businesses around the world that have found themselves in the crosshairs of OFAC or other agencies of the U.S. government, it's generally been when there's been a slip-up in the business, when the business may have been too lax 
uh, in its approach towards sanctions or its approach to business. And I think what the, the answer needs to be not to say no to business. Sanctions compliance should not be always saying no to new opportunities, but it should be realistic about what the uh, challenges, what the rules are, and finding ways forward where you can, and also turning off business where you really could not or should not be doing that work. Sure. And could you say a little bit more about a best practice for, I mean, I'm sure it's a challenge for global companies to know what every subsidiary in every country is doing all the time. Uh, So what's a best practice um, if a financial institution discovers that they have something to to disclose to OFAC? (laughs) Well, in that circumstance, the best practice is usually to run into OFAC as quickly as you can. (laughs) OFAC gives you a 50% uh, credit if you voluntarily self-disclose your apparent violation. So if you get a penalty, it will automatically be cut in half if you have voluntarily self-disclosed that to OFAC. If OFAC finds out about it otherwise, then you don't get that reduction and the penalty could be far, far higher. So generally when you've seen those incredibly large penalties against major financial institutions or other global companies, they haven't taken the time to discover what they've done wrong, and they haven't gone into OFAC to voluntarily self-disclose. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining us. If listeners want to follow more of your work or learn more about these sanctions, uh, where can they find you? Uh, you can follow me at www.mofo.com, my law firm, Morrison & Forster, or through Twitter at John underscore Edgar Smith, or through LinkedIn, where we post a lot of our client alerts and advise on what's happening in sanctions. Great. Well, thank you again so much. It was great speaking with you. Thank you. It's been an interesting conversation. You've been listening to Law X.0 from Bloomberg Law. For more Bloomberg Law analysis, visit news.bloomberglaw.com slash Bloomberg hyphen law hyphen analysis. You can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Dory underscore Goldstein. That's D-O-R-I underscore G-O-L-D-S-T-E-I-N. And I'm at Meg McAvoy, M-E-G-M-C-E-V-O-Y. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Cases and Controversies is all about the Supreme Court. One of the oh, come on. Words. You know, come on. Well, I agree Be with serious. you. We sit down with leading practitioners and scholars to break down these cases. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up so I didn't have to. But, uh... <laughs> oh, I interesting, didn't know that. Right? That is See? interesting. I guess my imagination is running wild. <laughs> <laughs> Tune in every week for our deep dive and sneak peek episodes wherever you get your podcasts. As always, check out the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Ha, 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 ha.